Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Focus. My name is Evgeny. I've been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own journey. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Al from SaveBase and understand Jay's journey and their motivation. Al, can you please tell me about the company and about you? Sure. Hi, I'm Al Yang. I'm the co-founder CEO of SafeBase. At SafeBase, we eliminate the friction for software vendors who have to go through security risk assessments. And we empower InfoSec teams with a customer-facing trust center to proactively share sensitive security compliance and privacy information. I think this is definitely a very important part. Many companies right now are doing SOC 2 audit or ISO basic certification, and they need to exchange information. And we're also talking about how we can make it securely. And this is usually very confidential information that we want to make sure not get into the wrong hands. You're absolutely right. So you guys have been a relatively new company around three years ago. So what happened with Al around three years ago that made him to start the company? This isn't my first rodeo. And knowing that, I think my first couple companies validated for me that as a human being, <laughs> one day when I look back in my life, I want to make sure I have made an impact as an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, building my own company really is the sure way for me to do so. And you mentioned something interesting around sensitive information, this SOC 2 and I, so I'm happy to dive in more on how we do it. I think you're absolutely right because companies work super hard to build their security and compliance resume. And these things are difficult to do. And that's why we exist to help them signal to their customers in a transparent, efficient way to prove that they can be trusted. Something I experienced, experienced firsthand in my last company. And that's a lot of reason why know the problem, experience it, live through it. And having met a really strong technical co-founder who's also a great human being, we, we have the right team to go tackle this problem. So there is many GRC companies around. And when you had the idea, you probably needed to go and validate that people will go and choose your services when you're going to build it. Tell me a bit more about the process. So during our, uh, let's call it customer discovery journey, we knew the problem, right? And the problem is that companies work super hard to build their security, compliance, privacy, performance resume. And the reason they do that, sure, one is to protect the company, of course. But the other is to gain trust, to gain customer trust. Frankly, it's a requirement too, right? When they do business B2B, now your buyers have to conduct a security risk assessment. So we know that pain point of going through that as a vendor. Now, companies exist, your point, GRC companies and other companies exist to help the buyers do the review. So we're on the other side. And... Knowing the pain point, but not knowing exactly what we're solving for. And then having someone who is an expert in cybersecurity, expert in technology and data, the way we approached it is let's not write any code. Let's not design anything at all. Let's just talk to as many different, we call it potential buyers, right? Who would actually take their wallet out and say, I want to pay for this problem because it's so annoying that... I will pay for it. And we put them in different buckets. One of the bucket is CISOs, right? Everybody talks about selling a CISO. These are the end decision makers. They're the big boss, right? 
for security compliance teams. Okay, so that's one bucket. Another bucket are auditors, right? Another bucket are people like software vendors. There's also salespeople because salespeople experience this pain point as well, right? Salespeople are the ones going, I want to close this deal, but we're still going through a security review. This is annoying. I can't do anything about it. And then they can blame their missed quota on this, right? And it's not even blame. This could be a reality. So we put different personas in different buckets have different sets of questions we want to ask them. So we pre-prepare questions to just identify very cleanly, what is the problem? And the problem might be different across different buckets. And whenever we finish an interview, we have our assumptions, right? We like learn something. We turn those assumptions back into questions for our next interview and our next interview. The goal is to find one buyer, not 10 buyers, persona types, and a big enough problem that all of the buyers in that bucket, let's say the CISOs, all sh similarly share. Then we can go figure out, okay, now that we know the problem, let's start solutioning. Because a lot of companies, and this is an experience I learned, they start building the solution and go chase the problem, and that usually doesn't work, unfortunately. These are repeating things that i hearing from people that they're not listening and they're trying to build something that has in their mind. You interviewed quite a lot of people. I don't know how many exactly. Mm -hmm. You probably know. Hundreds. Hundreds. <laughs> Maybe thousands. Yeah. So here's a question to you. Every time you go on LinkedIn or Facebook, talk to people, vendors always saying, I think I have an awesome product. I have no way to show it to a CISO because they're always busy. So what made the CISOs or the people you spoke to to delegate half an hour, to give you half an hour, to talk to you, to listen to you? I'm not going to lie. It's very difficult. And I wasn't successful either. No one could really do this well unless you've been a CISO and you have a network of people that already know you, right? So it comes down to relationship. When we started, sure, we knew a few people. We have some ins. We have some people that can make intros. But the reality here is your first batch of people you talk to are your immediate network of people that would just take the time, give you the time. And this is when you have nothing, right? And to earn their trust for another meeting or to refer you, you have to take what they told you, right? So let's say you're my friend. I said, please, let's, let, I have this idea. I want to run it by you. And it's a horrible idea, right? It's, there's no idea here. It's, and I want to learn about your pain point because you're a CISO, blah, blah, blah. And I listen and I take notes. And then I said, let me come back to you because now I know you're, and then I, at the end of the interview, in the beginning, it's always saying back to you, what did I learn? Is it in my own words? This is what I learned from you today this sounds like the problem. And if you say, yes, that's exactly right, then great. I go back, I make a bunch of different assumptions. Maybe I design something on a piece of paper. Then without taking another 30 minutes, I send you an email. It's, this is just as rudimentary as it goes. And it shows you, show you my potential solution. And it, you need to work hard at that, right? And it's from there you go, oh, this is really interesting. And you show them something and that builds. And it goes the same way. And there's a lot of cold outreach with a lot of not responses. I'm really thankful for the few CISOs that did respond to me. Now, having built companies and been acquired, having gone to schools that people might recognize, part of the reason we went there, having gone through Y Combinator, it's a little bit easier to get people to respond to you. I have to say that. And that's why I think you pay for those expensive tuition. You go through those things because people respond to you. Fair. And when people Fair. respond to you and there's more network within those circles, then when they respond to you, and I'm really thankful I mean, that the two, three people that responded to us, cold email, early days. And I I would say it's really important you go out of your circle because when I talk to you, let's say you're my friend, it won't be as good. I'm just going to be straight up. The feedback's not going to be as good, right? Whereas you talk to someone you don't know at all, who's actually the buyer. They'll give you that raw, 
this sucks feedback and you need that. That's what you need. Like you might be my friend. Oh, that's a good idea. You should try it. It sounds interesting. That's horrible for me because you just put me down a path to build something that maybe won't work. We need that raw feedback. We, know, we need people to go, you're kind of wasting my time. Then we just close that door, right? So when I have gotten those two, three people to respond, they ended up being investors because they saw what we're building. They saw, and then when they see the progress we made, they're We've now gained their trust with our ability to produce for them to say, hey, I have five friends who might actually be interested in your solution. And you're early on enough, maybe they'll be interested in investing in you. And so that was one, one dot at a time connecting and making a network. But you have to produce, you have to listen, you have to, you have to fail and show them what you fail. This is not the first time I hear about the feedback that the negative feedback in most cases is more valuable than the positive feedback because you're not ending waiting your time and getting no later on. When I used to work for a very big bar, we always say, I'm better to have no right now. We have no in the end. This is not wasting anybody's time. This is good information. So sounds like you were able to get some investors. This is good because I have money to build it. What about design partners? Yeah, design partners. I mean, the way I think about design partners couple of things. We definitely had some of those early on, but the way I thought about it, as well as my co-founder is when you say, Hey, let's be design partner. This is a very sample size of one, right? This is my point of view. When you say design partners, it's usually to me, not as effective as just really saying, Hey, we're building an MVP and we're not designing together. Okay. I'm building this for everyone. <laughs> and we're trying to build a product for as many companies as possible. When you do design partner, my personal experience is you start to become a dev shop for a certain company. Now, if it's a really big company, great, super great logo. Wow. Like they're going to pay you a lot more money, but you're kind of screwed because it might be very custom to what they want. And you end up having one company that's your customer and pay you a good amount of money, but you can't scale. If you do a lot of early stage startups, great. Selling to early stage startups is something you have to commit to. Either you sell to early stage startups or you don't at least for the company we're building, right? There are companies I can sell to small, mid, and big market. I've seen great companies that do that. Early days, we had to pick a persona. Is it an early stage, mid stage, or late stage? Early stage startup design partner is also tricky, right? Because if you decide to do that, sure. But for us, we want a mid-market and up. We were very clear on that. So when you do mid-market and up, to get design partners, it's better that our philosophy was just do enough customer discovery journey, figure out the problems, figure out the common thread of the problem, build something that people will buy. So they're customers and not design partners. Once they're customers, we improve on our product every release based on their feedback. So they can call themselves design partners, but they're really just strong customers who are opinionated and we empower them with opinion because they know we'll make changes to our product based on their opinion. Right. I you can call them design the partners. Describe this. You're describing this in a very, very smart way. <laughs> and I think not a lot of people understand this part because people are, oh, I need design partners. Oh, I need that. I need this part. And the main part I hold right now, in my mind, when I talk to vendors, is very important is you know exactly who you target audience. Because when you talk to a vendor, say, oh, we sell to everyone. It doesn't work with this. Or you SMB, or you meet, or you enterprise. You cannot be everywhere. Yeah. And I will say one more thing. When you label someone as a design partner, this might be a personal experience that we we learn and ah, which we didn't. It's just learning, right? I think entrepreneurship is just con continuous learning and improving, just like anything you do with the, your company, the people. But for me, when you have a design partner who's paying you real money, 
you're going to say no to them. If they want something you can't, but if you have customers and you're like, yo, my roadmap looks like this, let me add it. Right. And I know you want it. Let me see enough people want it. And look, I'm not charging a lot of money. It's a good amount, but it's not an insane amount. I can say no. It is so important. I think for entrepreneurs to know to say no early on to your customers, because otherwise there are so many problems that can come out and it takes a lot of how to be appropriate here. Courage <laughs> to say no. You now define your problem and you know where you're going and you have money. It's time to hire people. How do you approach the problem? And I say to people, it's not hard to find people. Even so people say it's hard to find people. It's hard to find the correct people for your company. Yeah. Did you guys build a culture? Did you guys build some kind of approach to hiring? that You will know you're going to hire people that are going to be sticking with you for a long time. No one's going to be just to say yes for everything, but will maintain this kind of eagerness to work. Also tell you what you think needs to be different, but still will do the work. Yeah. I can write a volume on this, although... Probably won't. <laughs> so I would say a couple of things and I'll try to keep this brief and you can cut me on the off because I can go on and on. People is so key. Businesses uh, succeed or fail on people. Customer, everything is on people. I mean, this is just how we live life, right? I mean, technology is taking over the world, but it's just still people, always people. And the word I coined early on, like when people ask me, what do you do as a founder? What do you do every day, friends? Oh, the word is just acquisition. And it's like, whoa, what do you mean buying companies? Like, no, your talent acquisition. That's the most important thing. And then it's okay, customer acquisition. And then it's investor acquisition, right? But talent acquisition is when your talent acquisition is there, everything else falls in place. Okay, so talent acquisition is so key. Why Combinator instilled in us very early on, and I'm just so thankful for great wisdom that allows you to not, go and get into pitfalls. And it was so much so of it was people. Like how important is it to build the right team? And here are my thoughts to answer your questions. So number one, just some bullet points, no chronological orders. A players attract A players. B players hire C players, right? So there's that. And B players don't attract A players. If you want a very successful company, early on, you have to have A players. The question then is, how do you identify A players? What is an A player? Because A player, might, people might think, oh, you give them a test, they give you 100% or 90% plus correct. That's actually not true. So a philosophy we shared is, and I heard this somewhere from a podcast, actually. I think the framework's like, psh, there's no better way to say it, like PSHE, right? And PSHE stands for problem, solution, how, and execution. Psh, okay. If you hire IC, junior engineers or account managers, like I see just people who are there to do independent work. A lot of big tech, a lot of big companies hire people out of college. They're hiring people for the E, execution. What does execution mean? That means, hey, we, we need to build this Ikea furniture. Here's the instruction manual. Follow it to the dot. I'm going to grade you on the quality of the output and the speed you did it, right? That's efficiency. You don't have to think, just follow. When you start a company, the last thing you want to eat you cannot have executioners. You need early on, later on, you're going to start at that. But early on, you need the P more than you need the E. So what's P? Let's go backwards, right? E is execution. You build the furniture. What's H? H is the instruction manual, right? What if you need to write this instruction manual for someone else to build it? So you must have done this before. Okay, cool. The S is the solution. Let's say you and I are at a party. We're dancing, we're having a good time, talking to each other. Everybody's walking around, standing there, chatting. Great time. We go home. Everything's good. Great party. The people who possess a P 
will say, man, what if you're like have an injury or you're pregnant or like you're handicapped or you're old or you're young? Where's the seat? What if you need to sit down? Right? That's when people see problem. You need people who don't just have a good time with things working and then go home. You need people to go, what's wrong here? What are the problems? When people can identify problems when things are going right, that is the most important thing. And then it's, okay, what are the solutions? Is it a couch? Is it a chair? Is it a table that can act as a place to eat and sit? Right? Was it a bed? I don't know, right? The how, it, the S, the solution is so key because that's the decision point and the people matter because different people come up with different solutions. And then the how and the E just takes the path of the, of the S, right? So you need people who possess the whole spectrum, heavily leaning on the P early on. Yeah, I think we've been talking about this for a long time. And you sound yeah. like a walking encyclopedia. We may need to do a different podcast just on this. No problem. And I'll wrap it with yep. this. Culture is everything. You got to build trust early on. A lot of exercises to do that. And it's all about how you manage conflict. It's not about how things are going well. It's about how you manage conflict. How do you actually have transparency, which is taking and giving feedback. And you really have to filter for that. So people is really key. Great. We're going to do a live show in May yeah. about you answering these questions because it sounds like something people need. <laughs> yeah, it's huge, man. It matters. Oh, I'm going to ask you, kind of go a bit deeper on one part because you it. mentioned A players. Yeah. And here's the potential problem or not a problem. If I have a bunch of A players in a the room, then they all have their ego. They all have the way to do stuff. It's mean back to, you mentioned resolution problems and conflict problems. What do you do is everybody has their own opinion because they're all A players. I think the underlying assumption is that A players are inherently opinionated and has a solution want to go their way. Actually, the way I define A players is not so, right? I think the way A players work is just how whatever their craft is and they're best at their craft and they're proud of their craft, but they're eager to learn. So the leadership philosophy is teaching, learning, teaching. So yeah, you got to teach, but you got to learn. So ego is almost no, there's no room for you. I don't think A players have what I would call toxic ego. People need to have ego for sure, right? But it's like too much or doesn't fit. So the DNA of that is key. How does it work? How do we navigate that? Because sure, everybody has an ego. I have an ego, right? <clears throat> is really this idea of a team launch early on and then setting norms. It's just so simple. And I think everything, every group, not just companies, families, should set norms. And what are norms? Okay, when we eat, we don't use our electronics. That's a norm. When we talk, we aim to have equal airtime. It's okay to interrupt me. Is that a norm or do we not want that a norm? We just have to have norm. One of the, one of the norms we have a safe base is assume best intent. Like we have a very diverse culture of people in a safe base and we're fully remote. We have a subsidiary in Israel. So we have very different culture background and we have a lot of immigrants so like immigrants to the US so like people come from different culture and a lot of times what people do may come off wrong to another culture but if we assume best intent if that's a norm then it's okay why and i know this person and like why would this happen and when you assume best intent a lot of bad assumptions actually just goes away or you can seek clarification so assuming best intent is so key to setting norms. But to your question, it's a launch to set the norms, agree on the norms, really key, spend the time or spend a week. And you're like, oh my God, that's an expensive week. Yeah, set the norms. 
set the norms. It can have a hundred lists. It can have five lists, but have it somewhere everybody sees and revisit and call out the norms. And the norms actually help you set your company culture. Like the awards people put on the wall. Mm -hmm. You can't start a company with company culture. You start a company with people who set norms to tell you what the culture is. Because the culture is just a reflection of our DNA, what we actually do. Amazing. Let's move on to a bit other, yes, issues, problems, or whatever you want to call them. You're CEO in a remote company. There's a lot of different tasks and you're hiring a very good people. How do you still manage? How do you prioritize between customer requests, what need to be done on HR problems, the problems of hiring, what need to be done on development? Oh, I mean, this goes back to the A player concept. Some people look at our leadership team. They're like, wow, you have a big leadership team. Yeah, we do. And a lot of that is because each of them are the best at what they do and no one else can do their job. I was catching up with a friend yesterday and said, man, like, how do you manage that many people? Like, what do you do? What if, and I'm like, I can't do their job, actually. <laughs> like, I can't do their job. Like, they're the best at what they do. And I think a big part of that is designing that early on when you build a company. You hire people, you recruit people, you get, you open up the opportunity to work with people on a company, on a mission knowing that each of us are going to own what we're good at and learn from each other and over time build teams around it and have a lot of overlap. I have a lot of overlap. That's what I have. I have overlaps. But the leaders and individual contributors of the company, they are fully aware, responsible of the outcome they're driving towards, right? So it's not input-based. Oh, you need to spend this much time doing this today. It's what are the outcome we're looking to drive this quarter? And we make that very clear. And then we work backwards on then what are the tasks? And then from task is what are the commitments we're making? And the commitments are by design collaborative. If the outcome is 10,000 more customers, okay. People say that's sales. Actually, no. What are the tasks? We got to have a pipeline. We got to have a new product release. And then the commitments are this. And then it's okay. Then that's our narrative. And then we go for it, right? So it's very collaborative, but it's outcome driven. Thank you. Are you the main or the first salesperson in the company? Of course. Yes. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of always the CEO. So here's an interesting problem. I don't know why I say problem all the time on this podcast. It's an interesting dilemma. Yeah. As a CEO, <clears throat> you are responsible to selling the baby, like to make sure everybody likes the baby. But at one point when you grow, you need to let go and let other people that you hire that are A players to start taking care and selling the baby. How do you do this? How do you let go? How do you trust, especially with the big deals? Yeah, it's difficult. I'm very attached to the baby, right? And I'll always be attached as the baby grows to a toddler and so on. I would say a couple of things as it applies to safe base. One is, yes, very early on, I was the seller. And it was more, call it outbound than inbound because the baby needs to be out there and needs to find people to look at it, right? So a lot of network to network, once we get a customer, get that customer to intro us to someone to take a look. What's great about SafeBase is we have a very, I think the words people like to say is PLG. I don't think I would use the word product-led, even though that's basically what it is. What it is that we have a very visual product. It is a literal resume, let's call it our nutrition label of your security and compliance hard work, right? So a company that has done so much work to get a SOC to, to get an ISO to do product security. They don't have a way to signal that to their customer. What we do is we provide them with a trust center. It's a lot like a LinkedIn profile and they can link it from their website. They can host it somewhere else. It's connected to Salesforce, but it's very visual and it's very pretty. 
And it's like a trophy case of this is all the hard work we've done. And you see some of our customers trophy case, you'd be like, dang, <laughs> like that is great. I mean, we're talking like really big, really great companies. And like most recently, OpenAI signed with them. and to use that to unlock the bottleneck of using their technology. And it's beautiful because they've done work in building their security. So it's very visual. And when it's very visual and they're using it to showcase to their customers, their customers come talk to us like, this is really cool. Like I could use this, right? So there is an inbound motion. So early days when I was doing the outbound, it was a lot more finding the network, getting connected. Now, and there was a transition point when there were more, There, I mean, we were built on kind of inbound because of that. And the thought pieces we put together, thought leadership pieces. As a transition, basically to a full inbound motion, it was a lot easier because maybe I'll join the first 10 minutes just to say hi and I'm the CEO, or I don't need to at all because people come here already kind of knowing what they want to be sold because they saw the product. And so the sales that we do is just kind of explaining what the product does. It's a product demo tour. And surprisingly, people are kind of shocked. We have 400 companies now using SafeBase and we have two salespeople who are really good. That's it. We have a sales manager. So I think that question, yeah, it's difficult, but the product hopefully sells itself and it has been. If you need to go back to the beginning, would you do anything differently? So many things, man. What function are we talking here? Company, company-wise. Could be people, could be raising money. Just kind of if somebody asked, what would you do? What would you choose to change? One or two things. I would say this. Knowing what I know now, it's easy to say that. But there isn't anything we have done that we, we knew it was going to go bad or it was a bet that we weren't willing to make. So first and foremost, there's that. Really important. We, and I think that this is really key. Having done this a couple of times, by really smart people, we take our time for some of the crucial decision-making. But to answer your question head on, it still goes back to people, I would say. I probably would have thought about forming more clusters early on around the, the people part. Now, fortunately, we got there. So cluster meaning time zone, right? It's very hard fully to remote, especially when it comes to people who depend on each other, like engineers to build, release, design, product. So when you have a dispersed time zone, West Coast, Israel, East Coast, Texas, like that's that slows things down as you get bigger. And or it's hard to have work-life balance for people because they're like, well, I got to get up really late for this because it's early your time, right? And that I feel unfair for some of the people that work for us and have just been sacrificing because of that. So early on, I probably would have been more conscientious of that. Now, I love everybody we have on the team. So I wouldn't have wanted to not hire some of these people, just be super clear. But I would have been more conscientious of that and maybe design. Now, we we switch over to pods. So early on, it was more top down because we're small. And now we have pods. Pods are designed to be independent, designed to give engineers on the outcome, which is great. So we're designing that way. But early on, I think I would have try to be more conscientious of time zone, work-life balance for especially people in Israel, because a lot of times they're staying up super late, waking up early for the US because they depended on maybe a product person here or design. That's one thing. I mean, there's a million other things, but I that one comes to mind the most. If you can recommend something simple and short to somebody else starting the company, what it will be? Okay. <laughs> be prepared to commit at least 10 years of your life. This is short and to the point. Thank you. We're going to transition to something I call the dark side. This is where we talk about stuff that didn't work as we expected. Everybody's listening. Thank you for listening. And please continue listening. 
So Al, tell us about something that didn't work as you expected, failures, problems. Some of them maybe help you. Some of them were just failures and just happened like this. Uh, failures. Yeah, we've had some failures. I think we really focus and we continue will be on the customers. And in some ways, I think assuming best intent, because that's our that's our philosophy, that's our culture. We I didn't anticipate some of our competitors who were, I will call it friends <laughs> early on. We're in the same ecosystem. In some ways, we're trying to build something that would include them, right? It's a it's an infrastructure, it's a platform we're trying to build. And some of these companies in our ecosystem, it would be great to work together. And I've always had that desire. What I didn't anticipate is for them to call it to build a competing product. And that's okay. I think competing products are good. Competing products validates the market, helps us do marketing. So we're not doing much marketing, blah, blah, blah. But I've seen some pretty bashful words come out to like just untrue to say our product is not as good as theirs. And then they have wrong stats. And then you're like, this is part of the game. But I was like, wow, I mean, I wish I I didn't give as much early on because I basically show them what we do, how we do it. I'm very transparent with the idea of building trust and working together. I think these things will happen. Did I learn anything? Would it make me do things differently? Eh, not really. I would say it would still do the same because I just assume best intent. And I think to work with someone, you have to give it your all. But those things, they kind of hurt <laughs> to some degree. And you lose an opportunity, right, to work with someone. I'd say if I really wanted to partner with someone like some companies that that now become pretty successful, I probably would, knowing this would have happened, would have done it differently. I would have already made us more that they needed us, right? And be more closed off until there's a mutual benefit and there's a real benefit for them to have to use us. And I can design it that way, but I just kind of, I was pretty open doors. There's people stuff. You always make hires that you in, initially thought it will work out. And sometimes it doesn't for various reasons. Those things are really tough, really tough to do differently, but they happen. Got you. We're going to close off an interesting part. When something bad happening in your life, when you were day, what is Al doing to get back to himself? Meditation, running, sports, just to kind of help yourself to come back to the state of mind when you continue working. Interesting. I golf. So I like being outside. I picked it up during the pandemic. That's a big relaxing thing for me, despite the balls may not go where I wanted to go. But I would say philosophically, I really like defeats. I like it when things go wrong. It sounds kind of probably perverse, but when things go wrong, and that's part of probably how I'm brought up, having come to the US at a young age and realizing a lot of things that I didn't expect and going through a lot of failures where it got me to where I am today. Failures to me is how you really build moat, build differentiation. If everything goes smooth, you're not going to be differentiated. You're not going to really react to those failures to do something better. But but that inherently, that's me anticipating failures part of life and looking forward to them so that it's an opportunity. I think it's a perspective of like when failures and defeats happen, it is truly an opportunity to learn. And the entrepreneurship game, a lot of people think it's winning or losing. Oh my God, I got to go IPO or like it's going to fail. Like it's actually just staying in the game. You just stay alive. Like just keep going, keep grinding because that's the game. And the same thing goes with any career. It's just stay at where you are and try to extract value for yourself and provide and give value. So failure is going to come. But when you anticipate them, you seek them as opportunity. That's when you grow. And I really believe that. So, I mean, look, I've been down before, but it's good. It's part of it. Very interesting answer. Maybe first of the time, somebody tell me that actually they 
anticipate and they totally okay with the failure part. So thank you very much for sharing. Of course. Great. Al, thank you very much. Amazing episode. You are very walking encyclopedia about people and hiring and many other things. So we really learned a lot and we definitely need to do something again. Yep. Happy to. Appreciate your time. Thank you.